by the grace of God. I am what I am. All right, if you have your Bible, uh, open it up, Genesis chapter 3. So that's an easy one. Go all the way to the left, turn a couple pages, you'll be there. Um, real quick, just a couple things. Before we get started, I just wanted to reemphasize that, that Curtis mentioned. Uh, one is, if you haven't filled out an application for uh, membership, but being a member of Veritas is something that you want to do, Make sure you do that. So we've got some of those on the uh, on the little table on your way out. Really want you to become a member. Um, floating around, not good in the long run. Um, church hopping, not good in the long run. Uh, we want you to commit somewhere. So if this isn't the place, then we want you to find the place. If this is the place, you'll get committed. Uh, so we can hold you accountable. Um, so we can come knocking on your door every Wednesday morning. Things like that. Also, community groups. Um, really pushing that. If you're here, you're a part of Veritas, then we want you to be a part of a community group. Uh, we want you to be a part of a community group just about as much as we want you to be a part of our worship service on Sunday. Uh, we want you to be around uh, other people in community, uh, praying together, encouraging each other, uh, and learning about Jesus, watching each other, learning what to do, sometimes what not to do. Uh, we want that to start happening. So community groups is the context that we're using for that. That's going to be difficult for us as Americans because community is something that doesn't come naturally. We're very individualistic, and we live very separate lives. So the, the convergence of our lives, that coming together, uh, is sometimes a difficult thing for us. So for many of you, that's going to mean stepping out of your comfort zone. It's going to mean a bit of awkwardness and things like that, but that's okay. Uh, we need to push through that so that we can, we can do what God's called us to do. So anyway, community groups, membership. Also a reminder, in a, a few weeks or a couple weeks, we're going to have uh, child dedications on a Sunday. Uh, some of you said you want to be a part of that. Uh, if you do, uh, you need to be at a class we're doing this uh, Thursday evening called uh, God-Centered Parenting. Uh, so we want you and uh, if you're married, we want your spouse to come and be a part of that class. This Thursday night right here, uh, 6 to 8 o'clock. So we're going to be doing that. Um, Curtis mentioned, and I'll mention again, we, we did have our, uh, our, our man day yesterday. Uh, ultimate man day, that is. And it went really well, I thought. <laughs> I enjoyed it, but I don't know if everybody else did. We'll find out. Um, it was a good day. We had over 20 guys here. Um, over 20 guys came and uh, sat through about six hours of teaching. So that alone, that's pretty impressive. So I was really, I was really pleased with that. What we're going to do today is actually going to take a break. Uh, I'm just going to take a break from our study in Mark uh, because I want to go over a few of the things that we um, studied as men yesterday. I want to do that for a couple reasons. One is we've got some guys that missed. Uh, if you did miss, everything is going to be on the, uh, on the website, um, so you can go and you can download them. So if you're a guy and you weren't there yesterday, we uh, want you to make sure you do that. So in the next few days, that should be up. Keep checking. 
Make sure you download those. Watch the videos so that you can see what it was that, uh, that we were talking about. Um, if, if, you're a, if you're a gal, I wouldn't recommend you watch them. Um, we, we, we spoke very frankly uh, as men. And so probably not all that appropriate for women to be listening to. So, I mean, if you want to, just let me put a little rating on it. Um, but go ahead and check it out. Um, so anyway, so I want to cover some of those things again today. Also, it's probably good to do just in case uh, your, your husband came home and when you asked him how it was, he just said, fine. Well, now you'll get a little more detailed answer. None <laughs> of those guys, we could be like that, like the teenager on the way home from school. How was school? It's good. Shut up. Well, maybe your husband did that. So maybe, maybe you asked him how it was. He's like, I don't want to talk about it. So <laughs> I'll let you know. So, uh, so we're going to get into that. And uh, some of the things we're going to be talking about today, too, um, we're going to revisit uh, in late August. That's projected when we're going to get through uh, our study that we're in right now in Mark. And at the end of August, the plan is to begin a new series called Male and Female, He Created Them. So we're going to talk about men, women, masculinity, femininity. Um, what does that mean? Why did God create both? Uh, what are the distinctions? How are they equal? How are we different? Things like that. So we're going to spend a lot of time um, expositionally um, going through scriptures to really get the, at the heart of what that means. So some of the things I'm going to be talking about today, um, we're, going to, we're going to revisit. So why hammer guys so much? You know, I, I, get that, I get that question. And uh, so I want to make sure that we're, we're real clear about that. Most importantly, the best answer to that is God hammers guys uh, in a very specific way in the Bible. Um, men and women, people, are held responsible for their actions by God, men and women alike. But there is a specific way that God holds men primarily responsible, not just for their own lives and their own hearts, but also holding men responsible for their communities, for their churches, uh, and most importantly, their families. So the reason that, that we come back to it so much is because God hammers it so much. What that means is that when we... When we teach specifically uh, about men, like in a mixed worship service, what you need to understand, especially women, is that when we are teaching specifically to men and about men, we are actually teaching women at the same time in a couple different ways. We'll get into that. One way is that men bear the primary responsibility to pastor and to shepherd and to teach their family whether that's their wife, their sisters, their daughters, whatever it is, they bear that primary responsibility. We want to raise up men, challenge men, and we want you women to know exactly how uh, we're doing that. We don't just want it to be our man day and we get in our closet and have, you know, spit and drink beer and read the Bible or whatever you're wondering what goes on there. We want to do that with you and in front of you so that you know and understand exactly where we're at. Unfortunately, most churches you go to today have a lot of ministries, and the largest ministry typically is a women's ministry. 
And the reason the women's ministry is typically the largest is because the church is full of so many weak men who aren't carrying their load, who aren't bearing their responsibility. So you have the majority of people in the church are women who are looking to be ministered to, who are looking to be shepherded to. And instead of going home to a husband or having a boyfriend or having brothers who care for them and shepherd them and protect them and provide for them and nourish them with God's word, they end up crying sitting in a pastor's office or they end up devoting more and more time to women's ministries looking to fill in those gaps and those voids. So while women's ministries can be beneficial and as Veritas grows, we hope to have some specific things that are targeted specifically for our women. Our primary solution to that problem is to train the men. Mangineering. We want to raise up good, godly men who love Jesus and love women and love children, love their churches, love their city. So that is, that is our focus. So we hammer that because God hammers that and because there is a tremendous void as we look around. There's a tremendous void in the world today uh, of good, strong, godly men. You know, we had over 20 guys here yesterday and the vast, the vast majority had lame dads. Dads who either were gone, checked out, not in the picture at all, or dads who were there who were present in a physical sense, but not in any other sense. Not being what we're going to talk about today, godly men who raised these men that we had yesterday up to know what it means to love Jesus and to cherish his gospel and what it means to be a real man. We've got some guys who learned what it means to be the world's definition of men and to be things like macho, but really no understanding of what it means to be a biblical man. So we've got a lot of guys who are just reeling. Because where are you going to figure that out? If daddy didn't show you how to do that, or an uncle or a grandfather or a brother didn't come alongside you and show and demonstrate for you how to do that, you're not going to figure that out on your own. You're not going to find the solution in in the media, you're not going to find the solution in today's books. You're just going to be reeling until, hopefully, God willing, you come to a place like Veritas and you say, oh, <laughs> crap, there's a lot of work to be done. But that's okay because you're surrounded by a lot of other men who are saying the same thing, but who want to work our tails off and who want to figure out what it means um, to be the men that God has called us to be. So that's what we're after. So what I want to do this morning is just a couple things. Uh, we're going to go through some scriptures ending up in Genesis chapter uh, end of 2 and 3, which we read earlier. And basically we want to do this. Biblically we want to look, and I just want to say as simply as I can, this is a man. What is it? This is a man. Not just anatomically, not just his physical gear, but what is a man? Spiritually, emotionally, what does that look like? The Bible gives us great insight. When we understand what a man is, that has implication for men and women. Okay, for men, the implication is, dudes, be like this. This is what God says a man is, so guys, be like this. For women, the implication is, hope for this. Look for this. If you're not married yet, wait for this. Better to stay single your entire life than to get into a marriage with somebody that's not this. And if you're married, this is what you're hoping for. 
This is what you're praying for. This is what you're looking for. Okay, is this kind of a man. Now, that'll be the first part. And then second, which really gets us into Genesis chapter 3, will be, where are those men? Because <laughs> I think what you'll see is as we get into that, you're going to go, huh, I don't know a lot of those. To quote an email I received last week from a, a gal in Veritas, she, she ended her email with, where are the men? So I'm going to title my second point today, where are the men? Because I think it's a great question in our culture today. Genesis chapter 3 will give us the answer. Because what we'll read in Genesis 3 and what happens in Genesis 3 is what always happens and is still happening today. Men who look a lot more like Adam and don't look like Jesus. The Bible calls Adam the first man and calls Jesus the second man. The Bible calls Adam the first representative and Jesus the second representative calls Adam the first head and Jesus the second head. And most guys today imitate Adam. They don't imitate Jesus. So we'll pray and then we'll, uh, I think we'll have fun. It might be a long one today, so we might want to go tell the, I meant to tell the teachers, but let's pray. God, thank you for this uh, afternoon. And thank you for the the beautiful weather that we've had um, this last week. sun shining, God, and the, the birds, air. God, it's been good. And we know that you made all that. And so we, uh, we want to acknowledge even those simple things before you. Because uh, you've given that. We appreciate it, God. What a great gift. We thank you for uh, creating these people that are here today. God, thank you for making us, for breathing life into us. For giving us uh, provision and providing for us. and Many of us have homes and cars and money in our bank account and relationships and security and safety and entertainment. and Gosh, we have so much, God. You have been so gracious to us on so many different levels, so thank you for that. God, one thing we desire and one thing that we do ask that you would give us is you give us good, godly men. That you would give us more good, godly men. And if it be your will, God, that you would raise up those men here uh, through our devotion to you at Veritas. So we do love you, God. We ask you to open our eyes today. Help us to see uh, what your word has to say. And we pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So you can keep your hand there uh, in Genesis chapter 3, and we'll get there. First thing I want to talk about, what is a man? Seems like a simple question, but I don't know if you've noticed, but it's very confusing today what a man actually is. It seems like nobody's happy being who God made them to be. Seems like women want to be men. Men want to be women. Just be a lot of confusion out there. Just watch the Disney Channel. Seriously, Kristen was telling me this morning, they're watching the Disney Channel, and there's a little boy monkey wearing a dress. I don't know. Kind of weird. I remember, and Peyton said to her, great observation. 
he said, there are, on, on, on cartoons, and specifically, I guess, on the Disney Channel, and I would agree, he said, there are a lot of boys acting like girls. He's right. A lot of boys acting like girls. I remember one time, Peyton came up to me, it was probably a couple years ago, he's my oldest, six. He came up to me, and he was watching this show called Little Einsteins. It's a cool show. I don't know if you've seen it. And he comes up to me, and he's imitating one of the characters from the show. But he's not imitating one of the boy characters in the show. And I remember the horror I had when he came up to me, and he said, My name is June. I like to dance. I said, You do not like to dance. And your name is not June. We're going out. We're going to shoot something right now. You're going to spit. And we might even drink beer today. <laughs> this is not happening. Somebody sent me an email this week. It was this thing from the Jonas Sisters. Have you heard of these guys? You know what I'm talking about. I think it's a Disney thing. I was horrified. There should have been a warning on the link that was sent to me. It is one of these beings. I don't want to say guys. One of these beings... And he's wearing spandex, and he's lip-syncing a song by Beyonce. And he's dancing. <laughs> I almost died right there on the spot. I said, you've got to give some kind of a warning before you send something like that to somebody. The day that I put on spandex, <laughs> seriously, the day that I put on spandex and start dancing around, and singing Beyonce songs. Get a gun. <laughs> Kristen should put me down and cash in on the life insurance when that happens, because I am useless at that point. <laughs> High School Musical. Have you guys seen that? It's really popular, <laughs> and it's really queer. Have you guys seen this? I mean, what are we teaching young men? Why is he singing, the guys dancing around and singing and spending three hours getting ready in the morning? Is that really? Well, okay, so before we get too far into that, okay, at the very, at the very least, okay, being a man is not wearing a dress. Now, I'm not going to stop there and say that that's it. But at the very least, being a man is not that. But poor men today, and poor young men today, and poor boys today, are totally and completely confused, especially if there's not a dad at home that's setting an example of what it means to be a godly man. What is he supposed to think? What is he supposed to do? What is he supposed to look like? How is he supposed to act? Who is he supposed to love? How is he supposed to know God? How are any of these things to happen? If we don't begin to seek out and to raise up godly men in the church. It's horrible. The Bible is very clear that men and women 
are completely and totally equal. But men and women are completely and totally different. We live in a culture that thinks that equality equals sameness. So if a man and a woman are to be equal, which we affirm, then a man needs to be, can be, should be everything that a woman can be. And especially in our feministic culture, a woman can be, should be, if she wants, and can everything that a man is. And the Bible would say, absolutely not. There are no screw-ups, there are no mess-ups. God is purposeful and meaningful in his creation. And male and female, he created them. And he built men for something, and he built women for something. And they are both completely and totally created in the image of God. They are equal in their worth, equal in their value, equal in their ability, equal in how God sees them. But men and women are completely and totally different. And that is not the message that comes across in our culture today. Not in the world and not even in the church. I can do anything you can do. Everything's up for grabs in the family, in church. Everything. Dad can rule the house. Mom can rule the house. Man can rule the church. Woman can rule the church. Total confusion. Because we hold on to that idea that in order for us to be equal, we need to be the same. So we start acting the same. We start dressing the same. We start looking the same. We start longing for the same things. And that's not what Scripture says. So we want to put a stake in the ground and say, okay, this is what the Bible says. This is what a man is. So here's a simple definition of masculinity. I didn't write this. This came from actually a, a group of men called the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. I think it was formed in the 80s, and they came together and saw decades ago a problem surfacing in our culture, gender wars and gender confusion. And so they have sought to assert what the biblical definitions are of manhood and womanhood. And here's what they came up with, and I think it's a good definition. We'll work through it, and then we'll get to Genesis 3. Masculinity. At the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect women in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships. Let me read it one more time. At the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to love, or to lead, I'm sorry, provide for, and protect women in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships. So this is what that is is saying. First, at the heart of. In other words, this isn't all that being a man is, but this is at the, the very base. This is essential. It is at least this. At the heart of mature masculinity. So there is masculinity and then there is mature masculinity. There are men today and then there are mature men. So we want to make a, a distinction there. We're talking about mature men. This is what mature men are. At the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of these things. And when we say sense of, what that means is not just duty-driven, but that there is, an, there is a desire, there is a passion, there is a longing to be these things in a mature man. There is a sense of benevolent responsibility. 
Okay, responsibility and man go hand in hand. Responsibility is key in the Bible of being a biblical man. Responsibility is simply this. Responsibility is I will do something. That's responsibility. Responsibility is I will do something. Abdicating responsibility, pushing responsibility off is I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to intervene. I'm not going to confront. I'm not going to speak up. I'm not going to change. And that's what's typical. So responsibility, but not just I'm going to do something, but benevolent responsibility. I'm going to do something good. I'm going to do something right. And that responsibility, what it is that I'm going to do, is a benevolent responsibility to lead. This is at the heart of biblical masculinity. God has created men to take responsibility to lead. Throughout your Bible, we'll look and see in Genesis, throughout the patriarchy in the Old Testament, to Jesus being sent as a man, to Jesus surrounding himself with 12 male disciples, to Jesus when he leaves, appointing a church under male leadership, and then Paul teaching Timothy to raise up male elders to lead in the church, and then reaffirming that in the marriage relationship, the husband is to be the head representing Jesus Christ to his family. Over and over and over again. God gives responsibility to men and women, but then calls out men in specific and says, you will do something. It's not going to be you're standing there and the husband and the wife or the man and the woman are looking at each other and you're figuring out who's going to do what and who's going to take the initiative and who's going to give the 50 and the other's going to give the 50, but he's saying, no, men, you are always called by God to not give 50, but to give 100, to step up to the plate and to lead. And when we say lead, we mean that in a good sense. We don't mean some of the connotations of chauvinism that come into your head. We don't mean a demand that men should be making that you people and women are here to serve me. It's actually the opposite because we're talking about leading like Jesus, who is the quintessential man. And the way Jesus led is actually according to Mark 10:45, he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So that responsibility to lead means that we come as men and should come as men to serve and to actually sacrifice, to give up. That's what we mean by leadership. It means that, that we don't wait for somebody else to do something. It means that men should be initiating. So many wives today, what they long for and what they want and what they wish, whether they vocalize it or in secret, is that their husbands would just initiate something. Just do something. Speak up. Or be decisive goes along with that. To lead means that, that you're going to initiate, that you're going to make decisions. The typical man today, when his wife or woman asks him a question, he will push it back on her and say, do whatever you want to do. And he thinks that that's loving her. And that's not what she wants to hear, man, if she asks you, what do you think I should do? She wants you to lead. She wants you to help her make a decision. She wants you to counsel her. She wants you to put your hand on her and pray for her. She wants you to open your Bible. She wouldn't come to you and ask that if she wanted you to say, just do what you want. She's not looking for a license to do whatever she wants. She's looking for and longing for leadership. 
She's telling you when she asks you a question, can you be a man? But the typical response and the typical answer is, and we, we think it's loving, but it's abdicating responsibility, is, well, what do you think you should do? That answer is, I'm watching the game right now. I don't really want to talk about this. Let's get this over with. What do you think that we should do? So that is the kind of leadership, that is the kind of responsibility that, that God is talking about. And that is the responsibility that, that Jesus took. What that means is if a, a husband and a wife comes in and they're having marital problems, that I can look before they open their mouth, I can look, and I've done this before, I can look at the husband and say, I'm holding you totally responsible for everything. But I'm holding you totally responsible for everything. Not culpable. That's different. I'm not saying everything is your fault. It often is. But maybe the blame is shared. Maybe it's all her fault. Maybe you've been great. That's irrelevant. The point is, who's going to take responsibility? Did Jesus go to the cross because he was culpable? 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who had no sin became sin. He wasn't culpable. It wasn't his fault. He didn't go to the cross because it was his sin. But what did he do? Jesus took responsibility. Jesus took responsibility. He cleaned up our mess. And real men, biblical men, godly men clean up messes. They don't sit back and say, well, I didn't make the mess. I'm not going to clean it up. I see that. And we, we war against that already with our young boys. Well, I didn't do it. I didn't make the mess. They have rooms. They each have specific rooms, and those rooms are their responsibility. Now, here's the thing. The other brothers come in and trash their room. Peyton's got the train room. Brady's got Peyton and Brady's room. Jackson's got Jackson's room. So they end up, at the end of the day, with messes that they didn't make because they all go all over the place, and they play, and it's craziness. But at the end of the day... You clean that room because that room is your responsibility. Well, I didn't make the mess. I don't care whether or not you made the mess. That room is your responsibility because we want them to grow up and look at their life and not say, well, I didn't make this mess. I'm not going to clean up. We want them to say, I'm going to be a man here, and this may not be my mess, but I'm not going to sit back and wait for somebody to do it. I'm going to clean up the mess. And that is what Jesus does, and that's what leading like Jesus is. The leadership means to provide for that definition and to protect women. So to provide. Real men, biblical men, godly masculinity means that there is a sense in the heart that we want to and desire to provide for women. That is totally up for grabs today. That does not happen today. Now, some of the times, what gets provided is just one of the things that should be provided. But there's a lot that should be provided. It should be a man's desire that if God should bring him a wife, or if he has a mother who's not being provided for, or if he has a sister who's not being provided for, or if he knows of, or these men know of other women in the church who are not being provided for, there should be a desire to provide for those women. To provide help. To provide emotional support. To provide spiritual support. 
to help and to lead and to open up the Bible and to answer questions if they come up, to support financially, support financially, to provide for her, to take care of her in that sense. That is exactly what Jesus does for us. He tells us that seek first the kingdom, okay, he'll take care of the rest, Matthew 6. He will provide for our needs. A good godly man, especially married men, as the head representative of Christ, they are to provide for their family. Doesn't have, that, means, that means if you if one job does it, great. If one job doesn't do it, two jobs needs to do it. If two jobs doesn't do it, three jobs needs to do it. But as men, we need to have a sense in us that we must provide for our families. Now that's going to be seasonal and it's going to be dependent on how many children you have and what age the children are and maybe the children are grown and, and, and the, the mom, the wife can work more hours. Maybe the kids are really young and she needs to be home full time. But whatever that looks like, the man needs to say, I am going to work my tail off and do whatever it takes to provide for this family. And that is what women need, and that is what women want. Sometimes foolish, you'll hear things, right? Foolishly sometimes. Especially with younger couples who are dating, and they're, they're in love, and they want to get married, and they don't have any clue sometimes what they're looking for, what they should be looking for. They just know the person is attractive, and they like them, and they listen to the same kind of music. They're like, it must be our destiny. But you'll hear things like, Especially young women will say, you know, I don't care. I don't care what we have, you know, for, for rich or for poor. I just, as long as we are together. Seriously, that's a load. That only goes so far. Now, there may really be a desire that the two of you be together, but that is not what she's thinking 10 years into the marriage. He's sitting on the couch in his wife beater, in his boxer shorts, got half his right hand down his pants, left hand's holding a can of beer. He's watching NASCAR. She does not curl up, you know, and he's, he's, he's working at Blockbuster 30 hours a week, holding out for a management position. She does not cuddle up to him and just say, I'm so happy because we're still together. Now, as long as we're together, and at, the, at least you're fighting for me and working and trying, and if we're poor and it's not because of what you're doing, you know, you're trying and you're making an effort, fine. But if you, you know, won't pick up the Sunday shift at Blockbuster because the Indy 500 is on, that's not what I meant when I said for richer or for poorer. So there should be that desire to provide and to protect protect to what that means to protect means to stand in between the women in our life that we love and anything that might bring them harm whether that's another man whether that's Satan whether it's another woman whatever it is that a godly man would come and stand in between so you want to mess with her? You want to lie to her? You want to date her? You go through me. 
We've got a lot of young single women here at Veritas, and we, I think we kind of decided yesterday at the Ultimate Man Day <laughs> that one of the ways that as men we should be protecting our young single sisters, especially if there aren't fathers or other men in their life, That's, that should be where it should be happening from, protecting them, but typically today it's not happening. So that should default to the men in the church. So we've already decided that if somebody is dating one of our sisters in the church and we find out about it, we pay him a visit. We get six or seven of us, we get them on the phone or we go knocking on his door and say, hey, how you doing? We heard you're dating our sister. That's cool. We just want you to know, though, if you do anything to her or say anything to her that we don't like, we're going to kill you. <laughs> Carry on. We hope you guys have a great relationship. But we're watching. We got a 20 on you. We're following your car wherever you go. We're stealing your mail. We're fully prepared to take you out. Okay, we don't do that because as men, we're abdicating responsibility. Dad abdicates the responsibility. There's sometimes brothers, they abdicate the responsibility. And even the church just looks and watches their sisters in Christ just, just get manipulated and get taken advantage of. So, at the heart of biblical masculinity is a sense that we will take responsibility and, and we will provide, we will lead, we will protect. If something in our house goes bump in the night, I don't elbow my wife. <laughs> Say, what was that? Go check it out. <laughs> I checked it out last time. <laughs> what am I going to go after him with a toothbrush? <laughs> you go get him. You're scary. <laughs> no. Okay, a very simple practical way. That means I get up. I go check it out, find out what's going on. Okay, we just want to expand that. It's more than that. But that's what is at the heart of biblical masculinity. And that last part, in ways that are appropriate to a man's differing relationships. In other words, it's gonna, that, that's going to all work out differently if she's your wife or maybe she's your sister or she's your daughter or she's a, a woman who's a church member. Obviously, the way you protect and lead and provide for it's going to be different depending on the relationship. Most intense, if you are a husband to her or if you are a father to her, you bear the most responsibility to lead her the way Christ leads his church. So, that is what a man is. So, that is what men, that is what we need to be. That is what we're after. Not just the opposite of a woman, not just being macho, not just being a chauvinist, but to love, to protect, to provide, and to lead the women who are around us for God's glory because we love them and care for them. And so as men, that is what we need to be. And for you women, that's what you're looking for. That's what you're, if you're married, that's what you're hoping for. That's what you're praying for that God would do a work, God would do a miracle, and that would be the, the man that God gives you. If you're a single woman, that is what you wait for. And sometimes the knock on the door turns out he's not that kind of a man, then other men need to be getting 
more involved. You see, in our culture, we're like, that is a private matter. She is an individual with rights. You have no business. Well, it may not be socially and politically correct, but we follow different rules. So we're okay with that. And if it embarrasses us and a lot of people think we're chauvinists because of that or they look down on us, I think it's worth it to go up to a guy and say, you're done seeing her. It's over. Take a walk. Well, you don't even know. We don't need to know you. Where do you go to church? Okay. You're done. <laughs> Who's Jesus? Tell me the gospel in five minutes or less. Okay, you're done. <laughs> Whatever the tests are. Why? Because we love her. We want to protect her. So that's what you're, that's what you're, you're not waiting for the Jonas sister. Don't wait for that guy. Because he's cute and cuddly now, and you're going to want to stab him in a few years. So don't do it. So Genesis chapter 2, where are these guys? Hopefully with that definition, you're not thinking in your head, well, those men are everywhere. Men are hard to find. So let's read about Adam so that we can understand the sons of Adam. First, we'll start just, I'm going to go through this pretty quickly. Genesis chapter 2, 18. This is pre-fall. This is uh, before everything got so messed up. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. That is an amazing statement because God has created everything and up to this point, Everything is created, he said, is absolutely good. And the first time he says something is not good is when he looks at the man and his aloneness. So it is not good for a man to be alone. That's why if a guy is not married, we say here, you need to get married. Not to rush into that, but you need to now become a man who is prepared, qualified for, ready to get married. Because that's what you need to do. Because it is not good for you to be alone. God said so. Now what the typical guy does is he gets married and then he's like, oh, I better become a man. But that's not what the Bible teaches. You should become a man now. You should get ready for a wife now. Once you're ready, then you can love a woman the way God has told you to love a woman. So he says, it's not good for him to be alone, so I will make him a helper fit for him. So God made man. Adam is, has dominion over everything at this point. He is the creation head. God has put everything in the world under his feet. And then God says that he needs a, a companion. He needs somebody to draw alongside him who is like him, who can help him. And that is the term used for woman. In our society today, helper is a degradation. Women don't like that. It makes them sound like a secretary. They don't think that it's strong enough. But God is called our helper. So, if women don't like the title, you're in pretty good company if God is also called our helper. So he says, okay, this is going to be a, a heavy load. He's a guy. He's got a lot of issues. He can't do it on his own. Ideally, he needs a woman who can come and who can help him to fulfill the mandate that I've given him. So God sends him Eve. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, that's verse 18. If you look down to 21, 
that seems like that should be the next verse. So the Lord God caused, and then he creates the woman. But there's a couple verses you need to see, verse 19 and 20, because God recognized this, but he needed Adam to recognize this, that he was alone. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So God looks down and said, it is not good for the man to be alone. And then he gives Adam an assignment so that Adam will also understand, I am alone. Because God begins to parade in front of him the rest of creation. And what Adam is coming to understand is, I'm lonely. You know, I'm, I'm talking to birds. You know, and I'm laying down next to dogs. And there is nothing here like me. I mean, even God existed in community. And Adam is looking at all these animals and saying, I am all by myself. So then, in his loneliness, God does this. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last, this bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So God creates the woman, the helper for Adam. He creates her from his side because that's where she belongs, at his side. So the biblical picture of headship and of responsibility in, in the man is, is not that he is out in front and he's sort of dragging her, taking her wherever he wants to go, making all the decisions without consulting her or talking to her and just the my way or the highway. I make the money, so you do what I tell you to. Likes to quote Ephesians 5 a lot. You know, wives, submit to your husbands. Don't forget that verse. No, she belongs at his side. She also doesn't belong in front of him. One's chauvinism, one is feminism. She doesn't belong in front, leading him and dragging him everywhere. That's the mistake that Eve made with good intentions, and it went pretty bad. But she belongs at his side. And as 1 Peter 3 says, he should be considerate of her, and he should honor her, and he should love her, and he should know her deeply. He should love her, as Ephesians 5 says, the way Jesus loves the church. And he should, with that deep and intimate and loving knowledge of who she is and what her needs are and what she wants, he should be a decisive man who takes initiative and leads her and his family. Not doing what he wants selfishly, but doing what she wants. Some guys, we need to take initiative. Some guys, when they, they first hear they need to take initiative, they go a little overboard and they just start taking initiative on everything and they start making all the decisions. I need to be decisive. And they don't ask her anything and they don't. She's just standing in line at the ice cream store and she's like, what kind of ice cream should I get? He's like, pink, pink. Get pink, Reese's Pieces, done, make it. Hey, honey, where do you think we should go to dinner? Applebee's! Applebee's, we're going. Get in the car. Let's go. Well, he took initiative. It's good. He's being decisive. That's good. But you might want to talk with her a bit. You know, and then make a decision. You know, and then initiate. So God creates Eve. He creates this woman from his side. 
that he could begin to lead her and love her. God had already given him the job. He had already given him the mandate. You are to care for this land, and now you are to provide for her, and she is going to help you be the man that I have called you to be. It's a beautiful picture. And you read that, and at the end, everything is great. They're, just, they're, they're naked? I mean, there's no shame. There's no, there's no embarrassment. There's no sin yet. There's no, there's no low self-esteem. There's no being real self-conscious. There's, no, there's just none of that. No walls of hostility. They're just in this perfect relationship. So if we just read Genesis 2, we'd be looking at each other going, something went wrong, right? Because <laughs> that is not what we see. So in Genesis chapter 3, now the serpent, that's Satan, he was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So that's a really good question that he's asking. Here is what Satan will do. He's called the father of lies. Okay, so he will lie to us, whether he lies to you specifically or he sends his demons to lie to you or he influences culture in such a way that culture is lying to you and media is lying to you and what's popular and faddish is lying to you. However that comes across, but as we'll see, Eve soon is very easily deceived, and the New Testament will reflect back and say she was very easily deceived. So women today can be very easily deceived, and they can buy into the lies that Satan is telling them, especially lies about themselves. I'm not good enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not worthy of affection. I'm not worthy of love. I might as well marry this guy. I'm not going to get another guy. This is the best that I can do. I can't do this on my, you know, all of these kinds of things that are not true. And yet women will walk around believing these kinds of things because they're being lied to by the enemy. Now what should happen, what Jesus does, what Adam will not do, is a man should come in and should stand between the enemy and his wife and should say, no, that's garbage. In the name of Jesus Christ, that is garbage. And he should open his Bible and he should say, this is what is true. You are created, sweetheart, you are created in the image and likeness of God. And then he should turn to 2 Corinthians 5.21 and say, I, I know you had a rough day and I know you sinned. And I know you feel horrible. And that's probably good. But, don't forget that 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who had no sin became your sin. So that you could become the righteousness of God. So that you could be saved. So that you could, Ephesians 5, so that one day He will present you pure and blameless and spotless to God the Father. Men need to stand in between and pray over their wives or pray with women and speak truth into women so that they are not deceived as Satan is about to be deceived. Adam doesn't do it. He abdicates. Already we're starting to see he abdicates his responsibility. One of the things that he should have provided for Eve 
that men should provide for women today, whether it's pastors, whether it's fellow men in the church, whether it's fathers, husbands, brothers, whatever it is, they should be helping in any way they can to communicate the Word of God to the women in their life. What you will see is what Satan asks Eve is he is asking, does God's Word say this? Is this what God said? Now the only way Eve knows what God said is if Adam told her. Because when Adam gave, when God gave Adam the command not to eat from this tree, Eve was not there yet. So that means that Adam was her Bible teacher. That he was supposed to communicate, this is what God has said. He's placed us in this perfect place. We can eat anything. We can't eat from that tree. And he should have given her the word of God purely, completely, in its entirety, specifically. Because what's going to happen now? She's going to reflect that he did not lead her in this way. She does not know what God said. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So Satan asked, Did God's word say you can't eat anything? And the answer to that is no. That's not what God said. He said you just can't eat this one tree. So she answers him, and you think she's going good. She says, No, we can eat the trees. We just can't eat this tree. But then... She says something that's not God's word. She says, in fact, we can't even touch it. And if you look back in Genesis 2, God never said, don't touch the tree. He said, don't eat the tree. What that is, is the very first place you find legalism in your Bible. Legalism is this. God said, don't do this. So we're going to make other rules and put those rules in front of God's rule and hold these up as high as Scripture and follow these like we're following scriptures so that we don't even get close to breaking God's rule. And what you've done, you committed a serious crime because you're adding to God's word. See, we think it's bad to take away from God's word. It's equally bad to add to God's word. God's word is God's word. And Eve adds to it. These are people who believe that it is a sin to drink alcohol. And they think it's a sin to drink alcohol because they were raised to believe that it was a sin to drink alcohol because drunkenness is a sin. The Bible says that drunkenness is a sin. Drinking alcohol is not a sin. But there are people who will hold that up as if that is what the Bible has to say. Don't dance. Some people are like that. They act like dancing is a sin. Why? Because they think that if you, if you dance, you're going to spontaneously start having sex. There are people who believe things like that or don't hold hands and they, they have all these rules. I know of Bible colleges where they have different sidewalks for boys and girls. And they have these legalistic rules to try to prevent us from actually breaking the real rule. Well, we don't want to do that. That's not the solution. The solution is to stick to God's word, to follow God's word. Adam should have been providing. Already you see he's abdicating his responsibility to provide teaching, provide encouragement in the word of God, to communicate what God had told him to his wife. He's abdicated that because she doesn't have a clue what God said. She's close, but she's off. So she answers him and says that, you know, God said we can't even touch it. Satan knew that wasn't true. At that point, he had her. Now, this woman doesn't know God's word. And as we're going to see, and there's no man here to protect her. There's nobody stepping in. It's just me and the woman going to dialogue together. And she has no clue what God has said. 
So at that point, the battle's over. Satan just kind of goes through the, the rest of it here. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Lie. Now he begins to lie to her. You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he entices her and he lures her and he says, no, that's not true. Don't be silly. God's a good God. He's not going to punish you for something like that. That's not what he meant. You misunderstood and he maligns the word of God. People today malign the word of God. Well, that's what he said. Well, I know that's what it says, but you got to understand the culture and you got to understand the context and they had some specific problems that we don't really deal with anymore and that's not really what Paul meant. Maligning the word of God. Oldest trick in the book. Satan maligns God's word and says, no, don't. The truth is, Eve, you do this, you're actually going to be like God. You're going to have control, you're going to know things you never thought you could know. It's true. She was going to know evil and the horror of sin and so she buys a lie when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes sin always is looks good tastes good but it has a bite to it so she looked at it and said well it looks pretty good the tree was to be desired to make one wise so she took of its fruit and ate here's the kicker and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So that is typically today's man. Abdicating his responsibility to lead and love, standing by, watching horrible things happen to the women around them, not stepping in, not preventing, ultimately just joining in with their sin. Ultimately, looking for an excuse to sin. Well, she did it. Guess I can do it now. Adam wasn't off. He wasn't unaware. He wasn't ignorant of what was going on. He stood by. He should have, like Jesus would and like Jesus does, he should have grabbed Eve and gone like this and placed her behind himself and said to Satan, you will dialogue with me. You will not speak to her that way. You will not lie to her that way. This is what God's word says. We are standing on God's word. That's what he should have done. He, does, he just stands there and watches and then he participates in her sin. Adam took it and he ate it too. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from God. So this is the, this is the sons of Adam. Well-intentioned, right? What is the situation? Well-intentioned women. Picking up the slack 
for men who are not doing their job and who are not leading. You're going to do something? Well-intentioned. She's looking at it. What Satan is saying, it makes sense. It's, she's rationalizing it out. She's taking her time. She's looking at the fruit. She says it looks good. It seems to support what he's saying, but she's not holding on to the Word of God. It looks desirable. I would like to be wise. Wise is a good thing. That would probably please God. Why wouldn't I eat it? What he's saying makes sense. Maybe it's not all that bad. And so she grabs the fruit and she eats it. And as soon as that happens, everything, everything changes. And both of them are ashamed. They're embarrassed. Sin has now entered the world. They're aware of evil. They're aware of their choices. They're aware that they've disobeyed God. They know they've offended God. They know that they've sinned against God. And so they both go, they run, and hide. And that is what is still happening with men today. They abdicate their responsibility, and then they hide. Then they hide in the newspaper, and then they hide in sports, and then they hide at the bar, and they hide in their room, and they hide in their garage, and they never go to church, they never develop deep relationships with men, they never do any of these things, because they know they're frauds. They know that they've given up, they know that they've handed things over, they have an innate sense of what needs to happen, and they've just abdicated it, and they've walked away. So they've numbed themselves with everything else. They've developed relationships they shouldn't develop. They've, they're into hobbies and spending and wasting time just so that they don't have to face the reality and the truth of who they are. They run and hide from God. Make up lame excuses why they're not in church. And, and everybody knows why they're not in church. Because that is where God is looking for them. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to be found out. And so men live their whole life playing this foolish game of hiding from God. Because we really think we can hide from God. We've read the verses. Exodus 22 talks about it. Men like this hide from God, so they think, for a while. And then, I, I don't know how it's said, I'm just quoting scripture. And then Jesus comes, he hunts them down, and he kills them. That is how he deals with it. He hunts them down, he finds them, and he kills them. Because you have offended me, you have taken advantage of my daughters, you will never be with me. He ultimately alienates these men from any blessings of God and hands them over to Satan and hell. So no wonder, guys, hide. But it's foolish. God finds you. Sons of Adam, God finds you. God finds him. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Who does God hold responsible in the relationship? The man. Who sinned first? Eve. Why is he looking for her? God comes looking for the man. He says, Adam, man up. Where are you? Get out from behind the bush, you wuss. What are you doing? So he says, where are you? He finds him. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, 
who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which they commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Now that is true. That is not a good thing to say, though. What is he doing? Still, he's abdicating his responsibility. He still is not taking responsibility. He says, the woman, not just the woman, the woman you gave me. He ultimately blames God. Points the finger back at God and said, none of this would have happened if you wouldn't have given her to me. And people do that all the time. Guys do that all the time. I wouldn't be in this situation. I wouldn't have done this if God didn't lead me here. I wouldn't be dealing with my anger if God would have given me a better spouse. I wouldn't be in this place in my life if I would have had a better father or had a better mother. Those are all just excuses that we make and we don't take responsibility. We point the finger at other sinful people in our life without recognizing that there is plenty of sin in our own life to deal with. We really do not need to focus on the sins of others. But that's what Adam tries to do. He's backed into a corner. He still tries to push off the responsibility. So then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. True statement. The serpent, Satan deceived me. What is she saying? I thought I was doing something good. He's lazy. He won't get a job. Somebody's got to work. So I went out. And I'll win the bread. He doesn't discipline the children. He doesn't instruct them. He doesn't spend time with them. So I guess I'll take over. And well-intentioned as it is, that is not the ultimate solution. It's that the dude would man up and responsibly lead. She says, I was deceived and I ate. I thought I was doing the right thing and I see now it was just folly. So the Lord God said to the serpent, here's the curse. He talks to the Satan now. He deals with all parties. This curse is still in effect. That's why you have the sons of Adam today. That's why you have the daughters of Eve today. That's why things are still horribly wrong because of the sin that entered the world. Now God is going to give some specific curses. What does that mean? Specific consequences to that very first sin that you can still see in the world today. So first he deals with Satan. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. We'll come back to 15, but it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and he shall bruise his heel, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman. Okay, so he curses the woman, he curses the man, or he curses women, and he curses men. And this is the deal. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. As of a couple weeks ago, I can tell you that curse is still in effect. I will surely, before that, you get that? Before that, you have a kid, no pain. Imagine that. Bummer. I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Not just the birth, but as you bring forth children. Every mom knows this. It will be painful. You will agonize. 
over your kids. And you will have a deeper struggle than dad will. And you will be torn in ways that dad won't. And you will be wrenched in ways that dad won't. And you will have affection and connection in ways that dad won't. And that son or daughter is going to be a sinner. That's going to be painful. Painful process. For moms, we love moms. That is so true. Another reason they need good, godly men to share the load. In great pain, you will bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Another part of the curse still in effect today. You can look at chapter 4, verse 7. See the very same language so that you can understand what he's saying. What he's saying is your desire will be for your husband. What he means is your, your desire, what you will want, is to rule over your husband. You will want to wear the pants. You will want to lead. We're going to see why in a second because a lot of the time he is not going to do what he is supposed to do. And so your desire is going to be that you want to make the changes and you want to take the initiative and you want to turn the family around, but the bottom line is that he is going to be the head of that family. And you can work and you can work and you can work, but you will not ever be able to make up for his failures. Because ultimately he is the leader, he is the head, and he will either tell the truth to your kids about Jesus or he will tell lies to your kids about Jesus. And there are wrongs that he will do that you cannot undo. Now, by the grace of God and a good, healthy church and your devotion to Christ, those kids can turn out and love Jesus, but it's going to be tough. Still true today. Verse 17, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. So what he says, he gave him a mandate. He gave him a job. The heart of biblical masculinity is to provide for and to protect. He says, your job of providing for your family, it is not going to be easy. Before, it was just going out for a stroll and just picking berries. There was no tending the garden. There was no worrying about thorns or weeds or not there's going to be enough rain or droughts. There was, there was nothing like that. Everything would come easy. It was heaven on earth. But he says, now it is going to be very difficult for you to fulfill your role and to fulfill your job as the primary provider for yourself and for your family. That is not going to come easy by the sweat of your brow. And men today are still under the curse. We're not all farmers okay, dealing with literal thorns, but we are dealing with thorns in our life. It is not easy to make a living. It is not easy to provide. That does not just come simply. It takes hard work. By the sweat of our brow, we will work to provide for our family. God says, you're cursed. This is what how life is going to go. And what you need to notice and what you need to see, and we'll unpack this a lot in August, but you will see that she is cursed in direct relation to the specific responsibilities and roles that he has given her. And the man is cursed 
in regards to the specific responsibilities that God has given him to do. It says you are to be the provider and the protector, and it's going to be hard. You are to invest and nurture and love these children like he can't, like no one else can. And it is going to be hard and difficult. You are to love him and to be a helper suitable, but instead of being a helper, you're going to want to rule over him. It's going to be a difficult battle, and that's going to be it. And what that does is it should, and it is meant to cause us to be desperate and to depend on Jesus because we are cursed. Jesus, I need you. I cannot be a man on my own. Jesus, I need you. I cannot be a woman on my own. I cannot be the husband, the daddy I need to be. I cannot be the wife, the mommy I need to be. I need you, Jesus. Which is why in verse 15, before he speaks the curse on Adam and Eve, he gives them hope. Verse 15, it's called the Proto-Evangelion. It's the very first proclamation of the gospel in your Bible. It says, here's what's going to happen, Satan. I'm going to put enmity. I'm going to put strife between your offspring and hers. Okay? In a general sense, we see that. Satan, demons, evil, mankind, a lot of strife. But then he speaks of one who will come from Eve. And he says, that one, here's what's going to happen. You're going to bruise his heel. Friends, that's the cross. You're going to physically injure him. But what does he say? But he is going to render a death blow to your head. The gospel. You're cursed. You've sinned. All of us, we're cursed. And we've sinned. And we do not deserve Genesis 3.15. But God had promised that one day, and now we look back and say, he fulfilled his promise. He really did that. He sent his son Jesus to destroy the power of the devil. Then God still is gracious. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. You can already see that Adam and Eve, though, what's about to happen, what has happened, there's, there's hope as they understand that God has promised that he will remedy and fix this one day called his wife named Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and the wife his, uh, and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So now you have God actually doing the first sacrifice, literally, for his people. Before he ever asks them to do any sacrifices, he makes a sacrifice. He kills an animal. He gives them skins and he clothes them. And he begins the process of being a good God who, though people are sinful and cursed, and run from him and give him the finger and he clothes them and provides for them and loves them and gives them promises and comes through on his promises. That is a good God. So that is what a man is and Genesis 3 is what always happens. So part of the role of the church with the gospel and with their Bibles is to turn, turn sons of Adam into sons of Jesus. Turn men who look like Adam, by the grace of God, into men who look like Jesus. 
by doing things like this and saying, this is what a man is. Now step up to the plate. Take a swing. Man up. Do these things. Become this man. You can do that because of Genesis 3.15, because of the gospel. So weak men need to come before Jesus like I do, and like all the men in here do. We need to come before Jesus and say, I am a screw-up. I'm jacked up. Don't know what I'm doing. I try and fail, try and fail. I don't have many examples. Didn't have an example growing up. Can't figure this out on my own. Don't know what this looks like. Have said things, unbelievable things to the women in my life. Have done things, unbelievable things to the women in my life. Do not deserve grace. Deserve to get smoked right now on the spot. But Jesus, you help me. Will you conform me into your image and likeness? Will you make me more like you? Will you change my heart? Will you give me a sense of these things? Will you turn my life around? See, some of those men are here or are going to get married or they're married or you're married to this guy. Especially for your women who are married to that guy. My heart just hurts. Because you're just being lied to about Jesus. So you need to hear and know that's, that, that's not who your good God is. That's not who Jesus is. And that he loves you and he provides for you. And he will protect you. And he will make up for the man slack. So hold fast to Jesus. For the rest of us men, you need to ask yourself, are you going to hear these things and be indifferent or are you going to work your tail off to change it? See, none of us are saying, hey, I've arrived. This is what it looks like. Just be me. None of us are saying that. We're all saying that in certain areas of our life, we're just a joke. We're, that in certain areas of our life, we are absolutely pathetic. That we do not deserve to have families. We do not deserve to have wives. We do not deserve to get married. We're just absolutely pathetic. But there's a difference between saying that and then being indifferent and not caring and committing. Men, we need to commit. So we talked about yesterday. I'm not going to be content in that. I want to become the man that God has called me to be. And we talked very practically yesterday about how to begin to do that. So what do we do now? Well, this is what we do as a church. Next week, we go back to studying Mark. We continue to look to Jesus. We continue to study his gospel because the gospel and the good news of who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done, that is the solution. That truth will build good, godly men. That truth will love, nurture Build good, godly women. That truth, if God should so choose, is what will change families, 
change the church, change Sacramento. The gospel alone is what we need. We'll continue to pound that drum because <coughs> that ultimately is what men need to know, is what men need to understand, is what men need to strive for, is to live out the gospel in their life. So that's what we can be praying for, simply put. That's what we're looking for. That's what we're longing for in men. That is what has gone horribly wrong. Jesus is the answer. Men, imitate Jesus. Women, long for Jesus. Hope for Jesus. Pray for Jesus. And until a man comes along who looks like him, you hold on to the real thing. And that's enough. So, let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Your word and your truth. God, we really do not want to be a people who say one thing and do another. We don't want to be a people who just listen to your word but do not do what it says. And some of us guys, Lord, we could be so prideful and so arrogant and so hopeless and so hard that we go through motions, but we really just hold your word away. And we can hear conviction from your word like this and we can just shake it off. We've become so good at it. So God, in that sense, I ask that you would render a death blow to the sin in men in this room. That if there are guys here who are living a certain way and leading a certain way or not leading a certain way, sinning commissively and omissively, who are pathetic, God, that they would feel called out by you right now. That maybe even as they sit here and feel angry that they'll realize that I haven't said anybody's name. But that the Holy Spirit brings conviction and names us and calls us out and says, that is you. And God, if we've got men who are just going, this is Mount Everest. It's not even worth a shot. Lord, will you also just kill that hopelessness? And will you remind or begin to speak into these men's lives that though the state of the union may be really sad, that there is nothing but hope in Jesus. That if he can make a guy whose eyes have never worked work, if he can make a guy whose legs have never worked work, if he can take somebody who is dead, rotting, and bring them back to life, he can make a man out of you. So God, help us not to settle for anything short. Help us to cry out and long for this kind of change. So God, thank you for the ultimate man, 
Jesus. We love you. We honor you. To bring you glory. All praise to you. And it is in that ultimate man's name. His name is Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we ask this, that we pray. Thank you.